Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. Today on To Die For, we'll be continuing our conversation with part two of our gender identity and queer code and horror episode, picking back up at the 80s and bringing us to present day. We'll chat about how costume can inform us of a character's identity, how the queer gaze differs from the male gaze when it comes to costuming a queer character through the years. We also have two very special guests, Alice Mayo McKay and Harmony B. Colangelo, joining us for the discussion. Thank you both for being here. We're super excited to chat with you. Yay, thank you for having us. So I would love to chat a little bit before we start with the whole discussion um, and hear more about what you guys do. So... Harmony, I'd love to chat more about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to. Oh, I'm I'm always doing something, but nothing at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I mostly work as a uh, media analyst, uh, specifically in like film criticism, usually specializing in uh, trans film or or trans shows or just the trans media because I don't know people like to listen to what I say and mm-hmm. I trust me more than I trust some people to talk about stuff sometimes <laughs> I also host a uh, <laughs> podcast with my wife called this ends a prom where we look at teen cinema from pretty much the 80s forward because teen cinema is a little more scarce before the 80s and uh, we really try to look at it from her very nostalgic lens and my lack of nostalgic lens because I didn't watch teen girl movies in in my youth being trans. And uh, yeah, we try to break down why it was good in its time or bad in its time and how it's held up now. And really, we just try to champion dismissed cinema as a whole. I love that. And I feel like teen movies right now are having like a real moment. And it's something that people are really starting to talk about again. And I think we should show them a little more love. Oh, for sure. I think it's a very fun podcast idea. Thank you. I need to listen to more episodes. I need to, it's so funny. I feel like I, I like have a podcast and then I don't, I'm not good at listening to other podcasts that I like see and I want to listen to. Yeah. It's like once you start doing your own, you're like so consumed with that one that you're like, oh, I forgot about all these other podcasts. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, how it is for me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a funny thing. It's like your, your whole identity is now consumed by a podcast. So like the podcast you enjoyed before, like, oh God, I need to listen to the other ones. well thank you so much for being here this is going to be a super fun topic to discuss and dive into and I really enjoy a lot of the stuff that you write about and I think that you'll have a lot of really fun hot takes that I'm excited to dive into absolutely we also have Alice coming from Australia Alice tell us all about yourself what you're up to and (laughs) what you do because I'm super interested in the films that you have coming up and your production company, and I would just love to hear more about it. Thank you. Um, so I'm a trans filmmaker. Um, I basically direct, produce, and co-write queer-based horror films, generally with like trans themes or gender identity themes in my work and kind of just like connect the two, I guess. And I'm also 16, so I just finished high school. So there's that as well. Um, and I'm currently just like in post- my first feature film feature film uh um yeah that's about it at the moment that's fantastic and it's i read a piece that i believe ren wrote for ghouls mag um all about you and i just think that your film looks absolutely fantastic and i believe it features 
um, Ben de la Creme, who's a Pacific Northwest uh, drag queen that yeah. um, from RuPaul's Drag Race, who's fabulous and seems very nice. And I think it's going to be a really exciting film. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's awesome. I mean, talk about the testament of teen power. I didn't realize <laughs> that you were so young, Alice. That's amazing. I wish Thank I did you. cool stuff in my teen years. Oh my God, what was I doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just dreaming about being a, a filmmaker and never thought that it's something that I could do as a teen. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very, very cool. Yeah, well, congratulations to both of you on like amazing work in the genre. So let's, before we really dive in, like I want to know like, what got you into horror? Was it something that you guys were always like into from your youth or is this a new thing or do you want to, do you want to start Alice? Um, sure. Um, so I guess I kind of always grew up like watching the Adams Family and the Monsters. Um, and I guess, so that's always been my kind of interest in horror. Then as I grew up, I just got into like more like mature horror so then I started like with like the 80s kind of stuff and then I just kind of loved it and I mean Buffy the Vampire Slayer really got me into more of the genre and then yeah especially like more recently the political kind of stuff and there's more queer horror to watch now and it's just everything horror now I guess yeah and it's all consuming once you're in it yeah <laughs> it starts with one movie and you're like yeah that was cool and then you're like oh I like crazy stuff <laughs> Absolutely. How about you, Harmony? I get asked this question all the time, and I'm the worst person to be able to pull, like, information like this at the ready. (laughs) It tends to more organically just spew out of me (laughs) rather than actually being able to, like, go to the library where it's filed away in my brain and pull from it. Like, I do not have a good Dewey Decimal System. (laughs) But as best as I can figure whenever I'm asked this question, um, (laughs) it's kind of always been there. I didn't realize that horror wasn't always an option because growing up in the 90s, uh, certainly with like a lot of children's cinema or uh, children's media at the time, you had like Courage the Cowardly Dog, Scooby-Doo, Are You Afraid of the Dark, just the limitless options for shows as well as like spooky movies that were coming out. And I uh, was enamored with Sci-Fi Channel original movies at the age of like eight, nine years old. And uh, me too. They're they're a mixed bag. Most of them are bad. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Abominable, which is basically just rear window, but with Bigfoot. And I think it's great. Oh my gosh. I I came up through like monster films and- As God intended. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But I came up through creature features and scary (laughs) music like Alice Cooper. And it, it really just was never not a thing. I didn't really consciously get into horror. It just sort of grew from there. And then I caught more stuff on TV, usually through a terrible butchering edit that aired during Halloween season and never really stopped. And here we are, 30 years old and doing more now than I was three years ago because, oops, I fell in and now I can't get out. Absolutely. I love that. That's like the best horror. I've fallen and I can't get up. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, speaking of the 80s, so picking up where we left off last time um, with talking about, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, we're, we're starting to now see this transition of the political climate here in the States. Um, I just recently finished that six-part docuseries on Hulu about the history of, of Pride and what and so each episode was broken up into different decades which was super amazing so it was like tracking the queer history through america through these different decades and so we see this this moral majority kind of bubbling under the surface in the 70s where you know you had 
women's liberation and gay liberation happening and the right was now fighting back. And then all of this completely shifts. And Emma and I talk about this all the time, Reaganomics, as soon as 1980 (laughs) happens and the shift within the horror movies. So let's, yeah, let's dive right in. So we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre on here. Um, and that was obviously 74 was the first one, but the the sequels now kind of go into the 80s and, and the 90s even as well. So yeah, let's start with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And like, Emma, why did you put, I know I, I can kind of surmise why you put it on the list, but what about that speaks to you as a queer coded film? For me, um, and it's something that we sort of touched on um, in our first episode about the gruesome foursome was that I think that there are a lot of different ways to read Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. And I think that it's something that many people do look at as trans allegory. And it's something where there's also stuff regarding like the feminine and masculine and um, kind of questioning identity and I think that it's definitely something that is um like we spoke about has themes of you know kind of reckoning with gender more than like you know Jason or you know Michael Myers does and it's something that I really wanted to talk to people about on this episode um because I was curious what um other people were feeling about this film because I think I've I've heard a lot of different takes on it right um some people defending it, some people saying like, no, this is not cool um, and, you know, offensive even. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of hear what people had to say about it because I'm really curious and have like a lot of different um, thoughts about it uh, and haven't quite made up my own mind on how I read it. And so I would love to hear what you guys think. Yeah. Well, I think for Texas Chainsaw, because it takes place in um, sort of like backwoods America, it's it's very it's a big slice of Americana in a lot of the worst ways. It exists outside of normal pop culture lexicon of like what was going on in like the mainstream, the MTV era aesthetic and style. And this is a very much a counterculture type film. And the first one, it truly is one of like the best horror movies I've ever seen in my life. It's it's a flawless movie. But the discussion usually comes up when it comes to gender for Leatherface. Um, I get asked, oh, how do we feel about Leatherface as like a quote unquote cross-dressing serial killer? How do we how do we contextualize that? And my answer is I, I don't because I don't think Leatherface is really much of an example because like Buffalo Bill like many other characters, honestly. He's based on Ed Gein, and so much of what is based on Leatherface from Ed Gein is urban legend at this point. It's all, um, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm probably gonna misquote my true crime history, but so much of what we know about him as a as a serial killer is a, a blurry mess, and it's it's very difficult to actually get what is factual about it. But I believe most of the rumors about Gein wanting to be a real woman, quote unquote, you know, transitioning into a woman and not just be some dude who wears taxidermied corpse merkins. He uh, he didn't really want to. It was one reporter after he was captured who then just started making like wild hypotheses and that captured the imaginations of everyone from Hitchcock with Psycho to a million other smaller versions. And it's almost the bump in the night of of queerness that we fear in America rather than any actual representation of it 
So do I think Leatherface is extremely campy and fun, especially in like the um, later ones before the reboot with Jessica Biel? Yeah, like absolutely. But as far as thinking of him as a a trans or a queer character, I think it's more of a a mother issue type situation, which is more in line with where Gein actually was and certainly more with where Norman Bates was supposed to sort of be coming from than any actual gender issues. Absolutely. And also in the 80s, like queer coding villains was very much like a standard for, you know, villainy and, you know, making it like they're they're like conveniently slotted as like the murderers in movies um like gay lesbian and trans characters all were in the 80s and so i feel like it definitely is something where um even airing on the side of like something that a character that is cross-dressing like that's something where it would make a lot of sense and of course like there's the source material of ed Gein, but then there's also the fact that like in the 80s there was a lot of filmmakers that were like exploiting those types of characters and anything having to do with like cross-dressing would be mm-hmm. like, ah, yes, that makes it more villainous and that yeah. makes it, you know, creepier. And it, you know, didn't necessarily have uh, the intentions of being like, this is queer visibility. You know, this is like a visible trans character or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because the eighties, 80s- well, this, the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre that was in 86 is the only one, remember we talked about in the gruesome foursome episode, that he wasn't taking on that feminine persona. So, like, he mm-hmm. did it in the first one, and then he did it in the third and the fourth one, but the one in the 80s was the only one that he was just in that suit the entire time. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting right. at a time where they were using those devices that that device in that film wasn't used. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm curious, um, so did, wasn't it, was it 72? 74 when, was the first 74, one. 74 was when the first one came out. Um, and I'm curious if it had, I mean, it had such a massive effect on the horror genre and on its predecessors. And, you know, I, I'm very curious if any of the kind of villainization of cross-dressing and characters like Ed, people like Ed Gein, if that had any effect on how we started villainizing characters in the 80s. I mean, I feel like when I saw the film, I never really saw the character as like a cross-dresser. Like, I always saw like they presented like differently. But I mean, I I feel like it's not like, I mean, of course the character is evil and stuff. But if you compare it to like Buffalo Bill or like Sleepaway Camp, I feel like that makes it more like that their gender identity and like their transness is like why they're killing people and like why they've kind of turned to like murder and stuff. Whereas I feel like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'm not sure if like the character is trans and I never really got that like reading, but I guess I saw that they presented like masculine and feminine more of like as like a genderqueer character because I didn't really know about like the backstory of like Ed Gein and stuff. So I guess I never really saw the character as male or female. I just saw the character as the character without a gender, I guess. That's a really interesting point because I feel like there are also a lot of villains and murderers in the horror genre that do seem pretty gender neutral or gender queer. Um, Like Hellraiser comes to mind, which we can get into later as well. Um, You know, characters that are just sort of like, they're either, you know, their faces, their masks 
or they're kind of like effervescent beans and (laughs) they don't necessarily go one way or the other as far as their gender identity. Um, And so that's a really interesting take. I can totally see that um, now that I think more about it. I think when you look at the villainization of queer people in the 80s, it's really broken down into two categories. And it really is like the split of the decade where we're pre and post AIDS epidemic in America. And there is a lot more um, mean spiritedness Mm -hmm. to how we wrote gay villains in the back half of the 80s versus the front. There's a lot more um, insidiousness, a lot more um, almost perverseness to this. We walk among you and we will like infiltrate the straight spaces and we are dangerous either because we're physically dangerous, like we'll actually murder you as a, you know, a killer or we will infect you. We're infecting Mm -hmm. straight culture. And yeah, it's a, it's a really weird way to look at that decade because especially when it comes to queer media, the AIDS epidemic really broke everything in america for 15 years easily and like we're still reeling from it but it Mm -hmm. it's a it's it's a weird mixed bag of stuff because on one hand you have something like dress to kill as an example where that happens at the very start of the decade it's like january like 5th or something like the first movie essentially of the 80s and it is i don't know it's beautifully Mm -hmm. shot it's de palma it's a tra- of like a canonically trans character, albeit very messy because the language wasn't quite there 40 years ago. And they try to explain at the end of the movie in in actual dialogue, like, what does trans mean? And there's some consideration there, but also the characters are snickering their way through it as they're giving this explanation. So it's not mm. the same kind of maliciousness that I feel like we got in the latter half of the decade, even by the time Texas Chainsaw 2 came out, which is, you know, the, the really the straightest version of Leatherface um, until the reboot. But it's a, it's a different ballgame in, in that decade. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot going on in the 80s, and it definitely feels like it is sort of a bridge in queer media. Um, because, you know, queer identity then became an extremely mainstream topic uh, because of the AIDS crisis. And so we saw a lot of queer-coded characters, um, lots of, and most of them villainous, Mm -hmm. you know, but we also have things like The Hunger, where we're getting, like, the 70s lesbian vampire craze (laughs) is now this, like, elevated... Uh, lesbian vampire craze (laughs) one of my absolute favorite movies uh but Mm -hmm. you know we saw that it was very much like the 80s rendition of it because it very much felt like men and women and really had sort of uh the same objectives in the 80s they wanted success they wanted money uh they wanted power you know things that of course women have always wanted the same things that you know, men have had the privilege to have access to, but it became more of a hot topic in the 80s. And you sort of see that um, in these characters in The Hunger. And they're dressed to the nines. Yves Saint Laurent was <laughs> Catherine Deneuve's like personal costume designer. Like this film had money and it was not like the schlocky 70s vampire films that we know and love so dearly, um, you know. They're like, ooh, we have David Bowie, we have star power, even though David Bowie's in it for like maybe 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, he's third banana. Um, and, you know, Susan Sarandon. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they, I find it so funny that they were like, they marketed it like, 
David Bowie's so sexy in this movie. And you're like, he's in it for 15 minutes. And then he looks like an old, like rotting <laughs> potato. And then they hide him in a closet. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, he's old. And then that's when he turned into Jareth and was emerging into Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is his, maybe one of the more queer David Bowie characters. But, you know, in The Hunger, we're, you know, basically seen like a bisexual vampire with lots of power. And what's good about this is that uh, we're starting to see the um, queerness of characters become a little more not necessarily. And it, I guess what I'm trying to say is with vampire films it is technically easier to sort of like normalize the queerness in a character or to have it be something that just exists and it's not really talked about as much um like throughout the film like it's not necessarily a plot point even though you know the hunger is like a violent you know erotica horror their bisexuality is not necessarily you know their personality trait it just is and we're also seeing like susan sarandon's character and Catherine Deneuve's character both being relatively like powerful, successful characters um, that happen to be bisexual and sexy. It's something where it differs from the 70s because it's not just like outright, you know, sexploitation. Um, and it's, you know, they're starting to try and do sort of this elevated take on the uh, lesbian vampire trope. It's also directed by, um, oh my God, what did he do? He did something really, like, there was, like, a curveball when I looked this up. Oh, yeah, Tony Scott directed it, and he's known for Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2, <laughs> which is very confusing. Um, so much machismo. Right, do you, but do you think that maybe that sex appeal, mm -hmm. that, like, that like oozing with bisexuality is coming from the male gaze because he's coming from yes. these, like, really machismo movies? Yeah. I, I think so. This was his first film. I think. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was his first film, and then he, like, immediately did Top Gun, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's I, trying to tell us something. Maybe he himself is a queer-coded man. I, th I'd i <laughs> like to know. I would like to know. I mean, Top Gun is a lot of boys loving boys out there. Right? Yeah. Boys in the I sky, mean, boys on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's definitely, there's a lot of questions that I'd like to pose there. It's very interesting to see the trajectory of queer media in this year because it really starts to shift. You know, we get ele elevated, you know, quote unquote, right. things like The Hunger. But then we also get a bunch of slashers with yeah. a bunch of characters that are definitely gay. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, the 80s to me kind of mirrors what was happening in the 1950s where you have this like mm. sterile returning to the home returning to the church returning to like these quote-unquote family values but in the 80s the difference is is that we had all of this momentum from the 60s and the 70s and nobody can keep quiet anymore like it's not okay for people to keep quiet anymore so you're seeing that come out in these films in these ways where women are taking the forefront and one of my favorite things about talking about the 80s because like we as a culture have never really left the 80s nostalgia period because it's 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 still there it's omnipresent that's what the whole yeah. returning to like the great america make america great again was oh hey we want to go back to reagan who is going back to the 50s because that is the period of america that we tend to glamorize the most and so we don't talk about like 80s nostalgia by way of 50s nostalgia because it comes around and you know a 20 25 year cycle so you have like these these dueling things in the mainstream of america where you have this return to 
a, a simpler time that we want, a more uh, sterile nuclear family sort of time. But you also have like the MTV generation going around where there's a lot more, um, we'll say gender fuckery, because it really can't be understated how much David Bowie, as a good example in The Hunger, as a person, influenced the style of the 80s as a whole. Like all of the new wave people who came up in the early part of the decade were all influenced by the gender bending of the Ziggy Stardust and, you know, Thin White Duke era. Mm -hmm. And by that point, David Bowie went blonde and he started wearing like these lavish suits and started going into this um, modern love, let's dance era of David Bowie. And you would see that in other things like Liquid Sky as an example. But it really blew the door open as far as like giving you a very clear image of what 80s style was supposed to be via MTV because before that like you could pick up little bits and pieces but you didn't have this focused phenomenon that everyone was involved in at the time and I I think David Bowie um you know certainly broke it and hated people like Gary Newman for ripping off his style and then went pop and I think in The Hunger as an example was like hey we're gonna add some darkness to like the new romantic style we're gonna we're gonna basically pave the way for what goth is via Bauhaus and goth culture has always been very queer especially because you know vampires are never fully heterosexual yeah yeah exactly and uh, that opening scene in with Bauhaus in the hunger is just I think it's my favorite part of the film oh mainly because I like Bauhaus and I miss going to like gay goth discos Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh plus it's so visually striking oh it's it's wonderful yeah absolutely it is it's really yeah it really really is and even you know to kind of further discuss you know the correlation between like the 50s mirroring the 80s um we're also kind of seeing another teenage craze like there was a massive teenage horror craze in the 50s you know i'm a teenage this i'm a teenage Mm -hmm. that i'm you know a teenage you know carton of milk it could be anything (laughs) um (laughs) but you know we're now seeing the teenage slashers in the 80s and that's having a massive moment and they both had really big influences on the genre. Um, And so I would love to talk more about um, the slashers of the eighties and diving into those because that, you know, of course is what people think of when they think of like eighties nostalgia, even though I also like to think of films like liquid sky that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. which is just one of my absolute favorite films and a really good example of very, very openly genderqueer, uh, media that was happening in the 80s mm-hmm. um, and very very you know experimental very heavily inspired by people like David Bowie and that kind of the subculture of it all but yeah I would also love to jump into the slashers of the 80s yeah now Alice do you have a favorite slasher um I'm gonna say Midnight Kiss I mean that's not the 80s um the Hulu <laughs> one um my favorite like 80s slasher would be like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 I guess like that's okay. the 80s right yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 that's that's a great one and there's lots of you know we all know obviously that it's it's almost not even coded queer it's just queer mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and i see the scream queen poster behind harmony on the oh wall. yes and also oh. it, it's signed incredible documentary that, that's that's actually my wife my section is all of that's the rock and roll boys over here and then her section of the wall in our bedroom <laughs> is all of the horror people and we're divided by the shock rock of kiss here in the middle so um I love it. but I no love like it. scream queen is actually a really great example of highlighting the uh the visibility of the queerness that exists in nightmare 2 because it was it certainly is 
a, a very polarizing film, isn't it? Where it's the visibility at a time where we needed it is so refreshing, but also it was written to be so homophobic. So how are we supposed to feel about it? It's extremely complicated. Yeah. And they kept the color palette too, like Mark Patton's costumes and everything. Like it's this very soft, very bubblegum color palette. Uh-huh. And then you have this like really heavy, like you were saying, Harmony, subject matter of like this complete juxtaposition. So it's interesting the way that they're using the textures of the clothing, the textures of the background, the textures of the film even uh-huh. to kind of gloss over the like what they were trying to achieve with this film. Yeah. Men's clothing as well was also relatively feminine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, but you actually, that's where you start to see the more um, mainstream visibility of what is essentially like the leather aesthetic of the 80s, where you would have um, like Hellraiser would, mm. uh, would very much capitalize on that aesthetic because on that aesthetic because Clive Barker is a madman and I love him. Or you have... Um, Rob Halford from Judas Priest, who like <laughs> created what is considered like the definitive heavy metal look, but it's just inspired by like gay leather bars. So it's the gayest outfit imaginable. And you see that in this movie with, you know, the bar he goes to right. or like with his coach, I think it is right where it's um it's definitely like this seedy area of, of queer culture that we're starting to see unfiltered for like the first time as audiences. um And, and, and you know, I guess straight people are normies if you want to use really aggressive language like that they're starting to become aware of what is what is gay culture outside of what we already know it as what what outside of like pinks and limp wrists and our idea of gay stereotypes like this is kind of showing like what actually is gay culture warts and all yeah absolutely alice i'd love to hear more about your thoughts on this film too you know especially because we know that uh and something something that we sort of touched on in the last episode but we can kind of touch on more um in this episode is like how um the tropes are like inherently gendered because of the way that the horror genre has been gendered um and you know so things like the final girl are very much like Oh yes, it's supposed to be like women, but also like masculine women. Um, and this is interesting because we have a final boy in this film, and you could say that his costuming was relatively um, feminine, but also you could argue that the '80s just that's just what the style was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to hear more about your thoughts on this film too. Yeah, I mean, like looking back on it, like it was one of the earliest slashes I saw, and I mean, I never really saw it as like queer coded because I mean, to me, it was just really queer i mean it was camp it was colorful i mean the character i always thought was gay or queer in a way um and i mean yeah i mean especially with that leather bar scene i think the only other kind of scene would be like cruising with al pacino even though i think that was before because that kind of did the whole leather bar i guess it's kind of a slasher i mean that's a pretty controversial film mm-hmm. um i mean i i think to me with the whole story i think i find it it still holds up i mean of course there are elements and the way it's told i mean the writers like is it queer is it not queer but i think to me it holds up as a film like with pretty good representation depends like how you look at it and if you look at it like are they doing it in a respectful manner or are they not but i to me when i watch it i see just like a, a good film with a good queer lead and a story that you know, is pretty relatable for a queer person. Yeah, absolutely. I do think a lot of like the nightmare films, you know, obviously like generally will explore like, you know, what a given character's fears are. And, you know, this fear being very sexual, very, uh, very much the fear of one's own sexuality and Freddy Krueger 
uh, being the manifestation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of funny that the writer and the team denied any queer subtext for so long. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad that, you know, we're all like, it's been like, we know, like we've, we've known this for a while now with this film for yeah. sure. Um, I think it's pretty, it's definitely pretty clear. Um, but yeah, Jolene, I was wondering, do you feel like the costuming for Jesse, the main character, how do you feel like it compares to other final girls like in the decade and also how other men were costumed um, either in that film or just like in the decade in general? I love this whole franchise because, right, so this is the only one that breaks the the stereotype of of the freddy lore that like he has to be defeated by a woman so this is the first time he's and the only time that he's being defeated by a man but he him and nancy from the first one because he's living in nancy's house um he finds her diary and all this stuff his color palette is very similar to how nancy's was in that first film where she's wearing those khakis with the khakis with those horrible pleats on the pooch like why why pleat on a pooch? why not like, i don't understand <laughs> who is designing these pants but that's the worst place to put a pleat but people wore them with the sweater vests and the bubblegum pink and his girlfriend in the film is, is wearing that same kind of sweater vest in that same kind of color palette and then you have that amazing crop top worn by johnny depp's character glenn in the first one and then you kind of get that a little bit in this one too with the sports references and um, it's his, what's his best friend's name in the film? Um, Just, you know, their dynamic relationship between the two of them. And so you have these patterns, you have these like, he's clearly in blue though. So he's clearly in this like gendered quote unquote color of blue, but there's elements of yellow, there's elements of lavender in there. So there's these softer patterns and stripes within these, button downs that he's wearing but yeah again he's got those high-waisted jeans on now that was a style of the day but they are definitely like he's a smaller man himself so you could make the argument that even just the cut of the jeans was even fitting him more form-fittingly like a like a pair of woman's Mm -hmm. jeans would fit um which is really interesting choice to go with that like the really acid washed jeans and the the the, like bubblegum color palette in contrast with freddy krueger who is in this like very gritty Red and green. Very no, questionable hat choice. Um, <laughs> like I've always said yeah. about. Yes, the dirty hat. Um, yeah. And what I like about this film, and you know, later on we'll get more into like uh, modern horror, but this film particularly was a good example of sort of like the legacy of queer characters. Um, something that Harmony's wife, BJ, wrote in an article that I read was <laughs> discussing um, what was it? It chapter two. Yes. Um, and how, mm. you know, fans were discrediting Richie's gay subtext, which was very, very clear. Uh-huh. Um, but he was costumed wearing the same shirt as Jesse from Nightmare Two. Uh-huh. I love that, you know, we're now in a place where we're we can make callbacks to characters that we know and love that we're like, that's that's a queer character and we can sort of you know, do that. Like in the eighties, we weren't really doing that quite yet. And so that's kind of cool right. to sort of look back on, you know, we see the eighties, we're starting to sort of create these sort of, uh, these, these light posts of, um, of queer media that we, you know, end up calling back to a lot, you know, of course with the eighties nostalgia, I think a lot of that is 
because we have so much nostalgia for the 80s specifically, like you mentioned, Harmony, like it's something where people aren't necessarily looking to find queer callbacks from like the 50s or something. I almost wonder if the 80s, like I've, I've thought about it a lot. We've, I've talked about it with a lot of people, like why specifically we're rooted in the 80s. And I think a lot of people go for the easy answer of like, oh, it was the last decade before the internet when kids would still go on adventures and could be the Goonies and whoever. And I think there's something true to that to an extent, but I think it's also that we didn't really like archive our media the way that we do now or since the 80s. I don't think that it was really as prevalent prior to the 80s. So in a lot of ways, that's where all of our culture sort of is is rooted in. Where um, when you think of like the 50s, most people think of like Greece, which is a caricature of the, the 50s, and it's actually from the 70s. But I think you have a lot of versions of what people think the uh, a certain decade looked like. Oh, in the 20s, everyone was a flapper. No, they weren't. And everyone in the 50s was a greaser. No, they weren't. And I, I think it's once the 80s happen, we start to become very defined in certainly the decades or certainly chunks of the decades. And... I think we have a more clear idea of it because we have a better idea of what things looked like because of television, because of the mainstreamification of like horror films as an example, which were not meant to be timeless. They were meant to look like the era that Mm -hmm. they were from. So they're not meant to be like, man, that outfit still looks good. And sometimes they do, but not always. And uh, I I wonder how much that ties into (laughs) things moving forward, because now we've reached a point culturally where we're just kind of mashing together every style. And that's great. It's it's like an a la carte for for aesthetic. Yeah, Emma and I talked about this a little bit in our last episode too, where, um, you know, you see specifically in fashion, you see the shift of like, you know, everybody in the 50s pretty much had like day Mm -hmm. dress number one, two, and three. And there wasn't a lot of individualized style. And then with the counterculture boom of the late 60s into the 70s, you're seeing now differences of opinions, differences of styles, differences of tastes. And then the music taste, the, the you know, what was accessible mm-hmm. becomes much more broader. And like you were saying, Harmony, now we have VHSs where things can be also brought into the home, recorded into the home. We have camcorders now for the first time. Where, you know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. just like picture slides. (laughs) I remember my grandparents pulling out these like picture slides that they could, you know, show family vacation photos on. But people were carrying around camcorders and recording things and chronicalizing the world around them as it was happening. And you, you're right. You have these different tastes. You have punks. You have creps. You have, you know, like those typical Mm -hmm. high school cliques that we put people into boxes of of like the differences of styles so that's definitely the root of the the quote-unquote nostalgia that we have for the 80s right now of like the the first time people and I think it's also the start of a wider broadcasting of individualities Mm -hmm. and individualized Mm -hmm. voices because you know you can't there was this whole movement of recording on VHS and then releasing it right into the store or putting it right into the video store so more people had access to creating their own story yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely and also I do think there is something to be said um, about how we sort of uh, look back on eras and uh, kind of immortalize them in one certain way and kind of look at the tropes of a certain decade mm-hmm. and uh, the way we view decades as we move about time really shifts. And that's one of my favorite things to talk about um, when it comes to costuming, because like today, you know, if someone's asking me to costume for a period piece, a lot of what 
I have to think about, or at least that I like to think about is, you know, okay, I'm doing a seventies period piece, but it's for a modern audience. And I want to think about things like what do people think of when they think of the seventies versus what is the reality of the Mm seventies and depending on the tone of the film, kind of trying to balance those two. um, So people, you know, can recognize it as, you know, a certain decade, because even now, like a lot of the times when we think about things like the eighties, we're thinking about the late seventies, or when we think about the seventies, we're actually thinking about like the late sixties, depending on, you know, it's just weird how certain things are sort of troped and then popularized. And that's just kind of like the thing we think of. Um, you know, so of course the eighties we're thinking of like, we're thinking of roller disco and we're thinking of, um, big hair, sweatbands and aerobics. And a lot of the stuff that was, uh, that we think about when we think of the eighties is like very, very much like late eighties or maybe even early nineties. And so it's, that is just an interesting, (laughs) um, thing to touch on because that's something I think about a lot as a costume designer and, and history fanatic. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyways, back to the slashers, (laughs) um, I would love to dive into, um, I used to work in a vintage store for five years where I bought and sold stuff and people would come in and be like, Oh, Hey, I, I want to look like a a person from the sixties. Where's your go-go boots section. And I'm like, you realize not everyone wore go-go boots, right? Like that's not a, that wasn't like a mainstream thing, but you think that it is. And uh, they would come and go, oh, well, I want to wear a 60s outfit for this party. Yeah, it's so weird. And, oh, I want to wear this. I want to wear that. And it's like, okay, but you realize like this is actually what the 60s looked like. It's like, well, I don't, I don't like that. It's ugly. Every dude wore a smoking jacket, right? And I'm like, no, not every dude wore a smoking jacket. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, when it comes to like subcultures and like underground fashion of every decade like that's especially where people are like what do you mean people dressed like that in that era like Mm -hmm. there was different people and you know there's like um uh, what film is it I think Driller Killer is a good example of um a film where it's like late 70s but um which is and that's that's a film that's quite the film (laughs) uh it's um you know it's like late 70s but you see a lot of like 80s trends and styles but you're seeing it in the 70s because it was a little more underground at that Mm -hmm. time but people did dress like that and then in the 80s that kind of like neon uh club look became way more popular and so it's just interesting the way that works and i always wonder you know how that develops over time and why we we associate things so heavily with certain decades that like are maybe like small parts of it or like not a part of it at all you know, mm-hmm. like, like people think of the seventies and they're thinking of like Woodstock and you're like, that's not, that's not it. Oh no. That's the, not even the right decade. The hippie movement was very burnt out and sad and tired by that point. They were done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they had been commercialized. Yeah. They were just, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a good segue to get into Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, because we have a movie in the eighties that starts in the fifties and kind of, you know, iconicizes mm-hmm. on those like fifties tropes of Yes, they did wore big tooled skirts. They're fabulous. Like that, but it's an 80s representation of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. 50s. Yeah. In Emma's favorite it's, film. I love this film so much. <laughs> I don't even, at this point, I don't even know why. <laughs> I just really like it. Um, yeah, I saw it for the first time at um, Queer Horror, uh, which is a, a Portland uh, series that drag queen Carla Rossi runs. Um, and it's an absolute fabulous run at the Hollywood theater here in Portland. And 
I uh, saw it for the first time on the big screen and I was wearing a prom dress and maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> it's like, I didn't go to prom. So this was like my little queer prom in this movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a really great film. It's something I'm glad she's, Mary Lou's kind of having her moment lately uh-huh. and I'm really happy about it. She is. Um, but yeah, this film is very much like Mary Lou needs to fulfill her goal to become prom queen she utilizes Vicky um, to achieve that goal, but needs Vicky to embrace her sexuality to, to fulfill the goal of being prom queen. And so Mary Lou's a very good example of like a heavily queer-coded character that is also a villain. Mm-hmm. Lots of themes of sexual repression in this film. Sexual repression is almost always linked to, you know, like feminism and queer politics. Mm-hmm. And I, the costuming is very interesting in this film like as you said Mary Lou is entirely costumed in uh, the 50s and I kind of like that because it also you know aside from it just being like oh she's a haunted ghost I think the 50s is a really um, interesting decade to choose for that Uh, not only because of that kind of mirroring of the 50s and 80s but that the 50s I think was a very repressed time for women uh you know, like like most decades are, mm-hmm. um, but the 50s specifically, yeah. um, we were kind of upholding these cookie cutter um, conventions in the household. And uh, it, it was an extremely heteronormative decade and um, that played very, very much into uh, the clothing. And so you can see that Mary Lou is dressed in this, you know, puffy pink prom dress. And Love it. It's very much just like classic, good girl yeah it's and it's gorgeous and it's an amazing it's an amazing look um but yeah I kind of think it's it's interesting that she's mirroring the sort of ideals of the 50s that were still very much prevalent and rooted in the 80s as they you know you could say still are in many ways now um and yeah I I I liked that the costume felt very effective in that way Um, And it's also something where it's probably the girliest prom dress you could possibly have in the 50s. Um, And it reminds me a lot of how I think about Jennifer's body, which we can also dive into later because that's also an incredible film. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sort of the demonization of femininity, uh, which is very much interlinked with the demonization of sexually liberated women uh, and further sexually liberated queer women. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear anyone's thoughts on Hello, Mary Lou, because it's just a delightful film and I could talk about it for hours. This whole episode (laughs) could be about this movie. (laughs) Uh, I absolutely love this movie. I did not see it until fairly recently. Uh, I'd probably say like three years ago because my wife showed it to me. And, uh, for the record, we have since Mm -hmm. bought a full size original movie poster that hangs in our kitchen (laughs) of this movie. But I... For starters, I love the idea of Mary Lou as like a feminine villain because you don't get femmes who are allowed to be villains, much less like queer women who are women who are coded queer, Mm -hmm. who are also villains, who are also highly femme. Like she's such a weird anomaly. And the reappraisal of her is really Mm -hmm. been spearheaded by like the entirety of queer film people. And I really love that we are looking back on movies like you said, Jennifer's Body and Basically, the queer people are like, hey, um, this movie rules and you shouldn't have been mean to it or you didn't appreciate it enough at the time. 
because we're, we're, we're really protective of the things that we love. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our beautiful, majestic, girly 50 schlock by way of 80s new wave stuff. Because everyone else in this movie also is wearing pants <laughs> for the most part. Um, I especially love the uh, artsy friend who makes like sculptures and has the ridiculous like Susie Sue's hair. Oh. Oh. She's my favorite. I love her. Yeah. Incredible <laughs> yeah. look. Oh, so good. See, that's who I would have been as a queer woman in the 80s. So uh, there's definitely this. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I feel the same way. (laughs) (laughs) But there's definitely this air of um, almost, I mean, people in the 80s, like all women were wearing pants as just like normal clothes. That was the style, like overblown, pleated, scratchy pants. Like that was, that was commonplace. But almost I love the, I love the idea Mm -hmm. of feminine queerness infiltrating this very casual 80s queerness. And it's just like, man, you got to look out for those femmes. They'll get you. They'll they'll turn you mm-hmm. when when you didn't you when you didn't know your queer awakening yet. You see a cute girl and go, oh crap! I didn't know this was a possibility. And that's that's who Mary Lou is. Only she is evil. She yeah. is the most evil person ever, and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it it very much like reminds me of my own queer awakening of being like, oh, I didn't know I was allowed to like girls. Mm -hmm. And then being like, I'm afraid of them. They're all terrifying. (laughs) Forever, like for the rest of my life. (laughs) Interesting that she is also very high feminine too, because this is something that we talk about um, in the last episode, this word androgyny and how it has been, and that maybe we should find another word because it's used to kind of, portray women that are um, adopting these masculine traits but are somewhat remaining this this air of gender neutrality but they're really um, masculine in traits so having this high feminine villain come in is completely doing a 180 from from what has been set forth up until this point yeah I would love to talk to you guys about this word androgyny because I kind of have not a gripe with it, but it's something that I've been questioning and thinking about. And we talked about it in the last episode a little bit um, where it's kind of this conundrum of androgyny being heavily associated with women dressing dressing masculine um, and gender neutral shops, you know, people that sell gender neutral clothing. Oftentimes it's just masculine clothing or like baggy clothing or just like t-shirt, jeans, but it's, you know, of course it's never going to be a dress. That's never going to be this, that, and the other, you know, very, I feel like, you know, men dressing feminine is like sprinkled in how people view androgyny. It's still not heavily represented. And also there's kind of no room for like non-binary people in this, you know, in this word, it's kind of like, oh, so are all non-binary people dressing androgynous? Like it feels outdated, because we've up to this point and still are very much just gendering clothing. And it's something that I think about a lot where I'm like, is it helpful to gender clothing in a way to be like markers for building our own identity? Or is it harmful because we're gendering clothing and we literally don't need to and all clothing should technically be androgynous. And yeah, it's something that I see a lot in Final Girls, especially in like the 80s and 90s, where you see a lot of Final Girls are often dressed. um, They're the ones like wearing pants. They're the ones wearing like a button-up shirt. Mm -hmm. Things that are relatively masculine, which is also another way that 
uh, we would see in the 80s specifically how they would kind of queer code characters, which is why like Mary Lou is like the antithesis of, you know, of this. Oh, if this person is dressing masculine, we're equating that either with strength and or we're equating that with like this woman's a lesbian because, you know, fem- feminine lesbians don't exist for some reason. Um, <laughs> or, you know, you have to be masculine and anything like a man to be a final girl. And you can't be like the other, you know, weak little femmes. Uh, <laughs> and so it's just, a, it's. I think it's kind of a loaded word. I'm curious what you guys think about this. Because um, I, I don't know why I've been thinking about it so much, but I have been. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about the particular word, but I, I really, um, especially watching the 80s and 90s films with the final girl dressing masculine, I've always found that a little, I don't know, like not that it's bad that they dress masculine, but like there wasn't enough final girls who dressed feminine, if that makes sense. And especially because yeah, it, there's really not enough non-binary representation in films, let alone the horror genre. Like, I guess it was good to see like, oh, they could queer code these characters. And like at that time, it was good so people could, I guess, have some sliver of representation but now it's like I think there needs to be just more like variety of representation like sure like women who dress like masculine still have that final girl as well but also have like more hyper feminine and just like neutral in general especially like males dressing more androgynous like that's not really something seen a lot still even in today's horror so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It does definitely feel like to this day the horror genre specifically is relatively gendered in how people are costumed and how we view, you know, final girls. That very much is rooted in kind of what developed in the 80s and sort of kind of carried throughout the 90s. But no, when it comes to androgyny, I don't think the term itself is outdated. I think it's just a term that applies to a lot of different things. And I mean, it's a complicated word because obviously you have more, um, you know, cis women or whoever who can present more easily androgynous because clothing is clearly gendered. It doesn't have to be, but that's society and it is. So you have, you know, we'll, we'll take a take a straight man or a cis man or whoever, and they're they're not they're not stupid. I'm I'm a trans woman. I know damn well what happens if I set foot outside in a skirt versus shorts. You get a different response. It's more difficult, and I think that that's why there's an aversion for a lot of you know various forms of male people or um, male bodied people, such as myself, genetically, to to do that it's 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 harder and i it, it's complicated but i think about um you know what does androgynous mean in like a texas chainsaw world where you're completely off the beaten path and in like who knows where america you know this could be mississippi or montana like or those that's what what is androgynous there means something very different mm-hmm. than what is androgynous in right. chicago or new york or la And there's a whole lot of complexities that go with the different experiences of what that word might mean and presenting as such in those environments. And I think about um, one of the best examples of sort of destroying the concept of androgyny, but also calling it out and embracing it is Elvira, because despite what she looks like, despite who who Cassandra Peterson Mm -hmm. has turned that character into, Mm -hmm. she feels that Elvira is an androgynous character. The reason being that she is hyper femme, like 
glamorous makeup, like giant boobs out, killer curves. She's amazing and perfect. And I loved her and I want to be her. But she thinks that she is androgynous because her personality is designed to be very masculine. She's basically one step away from just like burping mid-sentence because she is very masculine in how the character's designed. Adding to how that has been sort of absorbed and processed, Elvira as a character is essentially just Cassandra Peterson as a drag character. So you now have drag, because she was designed by drag queens, and now you have drag queens who are inherently androgynous because of... You know, they're uh, somebody who is dressing as someone else and there's some level of, of gender fuckery and that's the beauty of drag. But you have someone like Cassandra Peterson who essentially turned the concept of androgyny around 180 degrees because she was designed by men and then turned it around another 180 degrees and ended up exactly where you started. But you can't really ignore that motion. Like something happened in that full rotation and it makes it a it makes it a complicated issue that I don't I don't really know how to unpack more than me just rambling like this. But I think it as a term is just it's 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 a not a loaded term, but it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in a lot of different places. So what what does it mean? I don't know. Androgynous is a lot of things. No, I love that description. I think that's great because. Um, I mean, as a for me as a straight woman, you really definitely put a lot of things into perspective of like the creation of characters like Elvira, the the like evolution of the, the way that we gender clothing and the way that we're dismantling this gendering of clothing. And I, gosh, I like that was amazing. That was an awesome description of like where the word androgyny is at. That was great. But yeah, do you want to jump into Summer Party Massacre now? Yeah, I, I would know. love to because I know that. I know that you have you have <laughs> thoughts and feelings about it. Um, I do. I have lots of thoughts and feelings, specifically about the second one, because I love the first one, and it's great, and it's a, a wonderful slasher because you think it's, just from a feminist perspective, you think these women are, like, ditzy and dumb, and, you know, they're going to get picked off, and some of them do, but, like, the resilience behind them, these are absolutely female gaze films, and that's what makes them so incredible. But the second one is also <laughs> a musical with this really sexy, like, leather daddy driller um, guitarist that I I have such a crush <laughs> on this man, Adonis. And he's like a Greek pop star. <laughs> Who wouldn't love that? But it's also really gnarly in the sense that they're breaking gender stereotypes by, like, putting you know the one friend who's like wearing this bubblegum pink crop top but she's a drummer and she's got this really gnarly zit on the side of her face that you don't normally see women having the chance to be that ugly and that's mm. what I love about these films is that they're just a good time and they're just throwing you in and there's so much color and so much um 80s like this is what we think of when we think of the 80s this like and I feel like we the costuming is relatively in line with like what you would expect 80s costuming to be like I feel like when it comes to like the costuming informing queer identity in the 80s it's pretty subtle and it's usually playing it's either like you know it's either like Mary Lou where you're playing off of an entirely different decade mm -hmm. or if you're playing off of the 80s at the time it very much was kind of just subtly playing off of the trends at the time and I think there are 
some differences when it comes to like the male gaze versus the female gaze with costuming, you know, it, uh, you know, across genre and across decades where um, it also comes down to how it's shot, um, but how if they're sexualized, the costumes aren't necessarily what's sexualizing them all the time. But to be fair, in the 80s, I think clothing was relatively skimpy, like for everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you kind of couldn't get away from that, um, which, you know, who would want to? Clothing should always right. be fun and skimpy and 80s and colorful. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting from a costuming perspective because I don't necessarily know how much of the costuming informs um, kind of the queer identities of any of these characters um, versus anything else. But you can see a little bit of the difference uh, just that it comes from it coming from a, a female perspective. I mean, I, I really love the franchise because, I mean, first of all, like it's the 80s and both like it's directed and written by a woman, especially in the horror genre. Yeah. I think that's pretty impressive. And it's still like there's a level of femininity and like all the characters are still feminine, but they're also really smart. And like there's also that variation of like a range of different personalities. And it doesn't like define, oh, they're going to get killed straight away. And they're still like, sexualized but it's not coming from like i don't think that like creepy kind of male perspective like trying to like yeah just make it really weird so yeah absolutely i'd love to talk more about the lost boys as well because i know that that is one of jolene's favorites that i'm that's one of my yes. blind spots like i'm i don't know why it's one of my blind okay. spots but it is <laughs> um and it shouldn't be uh but i know that um, you guys probably have some more perspective on this film uh, I know a lot of people in my life um, that are queer that have referenced the Lost Boys um, within their own style. And they're like, that's exactly what I want to dress like. And so I do feel like it's another film that's kind of like a pinnacle film where we're having like callbacks to it now. Um, and another film that's really beloved by the queer community. Um, and so I'd love to talk about the costuming in that film because... I think that that was relatively influential. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like what Harmony was speaking to earlier, where you have this um, MTV mm -hmm. generation now coming forth and making these horror movies. So there's a lot of that underground rock music. You have a lot of the underground punk scene. And you have a lot of, you know, the leather tropes. You have, like, the Stevie Nicks-esque character in Star, played by Jamie Gertz. Um, where she's more ethereal, she's wearing lots of lace and found vintage. Um, you have that great, like, little boy um, coat with the <laughs> epaulets on on the on um on the little boy, which is like this like found piece of clothing. But then you have Corey Haim's character, Michael's younger brother, who is not really. Um, I, but I've read that, like, he's he wasn't, like, set out to be queer, but then, like, you see the posters on his wall, and he's got this, like, Rob Lowe crop top <laughs> poster on his wall that you would might see on the wall of a, of, of a girl's bedroom, and, like, he is quite um, effeminate in his traits, where he seeks his mother for comfort more, even though he's a teenage boy, and he's wearing softer prints compared to the the vampires and michael and star and um you know he's he's more afraid and he's more in touch with his feelings in that way so um it it's a i think it's just such a beautiful coming of age film and now i didn't come <laughs> of age obviously in 87 when this film came out 
um, we could talk about coming of age because Jennifer's <laughs> body was my high school years. But um, <laughs> but I, I think for that late 80s MTV culture, this was definitely one of those ones where you could find yourself in any of those characters identifying as any person for yourself within those characters. Um, also, I just want to say, I think that like queer coding characters through the posters in their bedroom is like my favorite way to queer code <laughs> characters, but. Oh, I love it too. <laughs> that's my, that's my two cents. <laughs> no, I actually really love the way the costume design in the Lost Boys functions, because at this point in the late eighties, you're dealing with a lot of, queer homelessness, um, particularly because of the AIDS epidemic. So you have these this roaming group of vampires who are almost feral in their design choices for their costumes. It's like, hey, let's take Adam Ant, but he got mauled by wolves. That's kind of the aesthetic they're working with. And it definitely presents them as predators mm-hmm. versus prey in this very queer story because of like the softness of Corey, you know? He's he's more sensitive. He's more he's so he's so easy to be corrupted by Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, and I think setting it now I've I have never lived on the West Coast, but I think setting it on the West Coast gives it that extra layer to it because I know that um just from things that I read, because it is warmer all year round, like mm-hmm. there is a larger homelessness um and I don't want to say issue, that's not the right word, but there is a mm-hmm. larger homelessness population out on the West Coast because of the warmer weather, you know, you don't have to necessarily, it's not like New York city where you're, you're finding shelter in the storms and stuff like that. So there is, um, it's more spread out. It's more laid back. So there is that, that, yeah, like you were saying this prey versus predator in this like relaxed environment. And then you have the grandfather and then the frog brothers who are like what, you know, a lot of eighties character tropes that come up in different eighties movies of Mm -hmm. like the crazy old coot, who like served in Nam and is now older, but we see it now in the grandfather and then these two younger brothers, which I think is a funny uh, dichotomy. Like even with the theme song, like that they play like multiple times throughout the film, isn't like the lyrics cry little sister or something like that. And it's like this really kind of more feminine kind of theme to be playing for a typical like teenage boy character. Mm-hmm. So I guess that kind of adds to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to also just kind of like, unpack in general in what ways can costuming or just a film queer code a character like what are things that stick out to you guys when you know people talk about oh there's a queer coded film um because I think it can become sort of like a convoluted thing where there's not really um at least to the naked eye a lot of people will be like how is this film queer coded and i think that there's like a multitude of ways and so i would love to hear not just you know the 80s but just in general um how you guys view queer cinema and gender queer characters um especially when it comes to like code or things that are like not being told to you up front. I think it could be a lot of things. It really just depends on what the, the context, like when the movie was coming out, where it's set. Because you have um, a, a movie that I don't think we were planning on talking about that I totally forgot about. Because again, I'm really bad at pulling information from my brain, which is something like um, The Final Girls, which <laughs> is not meant to be a queer film, but it comes off as incredibly queer, both in how the characters interact with each other, that it plays out like a romance film. Uh, The short hair certainly helps because, you know, some people look really good in a pixie cut. I'm not one of them. But 
I think it really depends on um, the writing shorthand that you get. Like, you know, when you see a character, you can usually get an idea of what that person's going to be based on how their character's designed and whether you want to, you know, to break that mold when you actually write down how that character is going to function in the story. That's that's one thing or the other. But like there certainly is a creative shorthand to coding a character queer where, you know, oh, we'll just put her in masculine clothing, give her a masculine haircut. Maybe she doesn't wear makeup and then, you know, switch, flip that for any kind of, you know, male character and then. Once you get into trans, non-binary, and queer people, that whole thing just is completely blown up and gets very complicated because there's no easy way to do that anymore. Or maybe it is extremely easy and we just stick to stereotypes. Either way. I think when it comes to understanding a queer-coded character, it really just depends on a certain level of um, how they interact with other characters. Is there a friendliness? Is there a softness? Is there an idea of found family? What kind of, um, how do they look at other characters? And I don't want to say that like, oh, hey, they're not defined by their own actions, but socially gay people are, like, that's how queer people function, right? Like, we're not treated like shit because of us. Like, we're pretty happy with ourselves. Any sort of issues that we have with like depression or addiction or any of the complexities that come with that usually are with how we're treated by people. So certainly for me, how the character interacts with other people is an easy way to indicate like, oh, where do they lie on like a Kinsey scale? You know, if you want to use an outdated metric, are they like real, real gay? Or are they just like a Kinsey too, which is like, you know, a little bit, but we're all a little bit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How about for you, Alice, like as a teenager watching these films, like how are you um, kind of breaking down these characters? Um, I mean, I pretty much agree with what Harmony said, but I feel like it's also like personal experience as well. Like mm-hmm. if there's elements like, like if you can relate to a certain character, whether that be in like, oh, their bedroom decorations, like all the certain musical artists they listen to, not that that defines their queerness, but like, you know, it also helps and like their interests maybe. Um, I mean, especially the way they interact, as like Harmony said, like are they more of a social outcast? Because then you can get kind of more, not like to say all queer people are social outcasts, but you know, like especially in high school films, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, they're more of an outsider. They're more like away from like the main group or they're less especially if it's a male character, they're less into like the traditional masculine sports, like music kind of stuff. I think especially like the music of the film is really a way for me to kind of like guess as well. It's like, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That definitely rings true. And yeah, it's really interesting because when I think about queer coding a character, Um, And especially with costuming, you know, so much of a film is the design, you know, the production design, the costume design, Um, you know, your, the code comes through, not just necessarily through their dialogue. It's not always, you know, what they're saying. A lot of it is what's around them. What are they surrounded with? What's their environment look like? Who are their friends? How are they, how are they dressed? Um, You know, like an example in the 90s would be like the Night of the Living Dead remake mm-hmm. uh, where we have a character. Um, oh, gosh, I, for, I forget her name. But she's the one character that is villainized, but also um, dressed relatively masculine and kind of gender neutral. And she has like a short haircut. And she's also not sexually linked to anyone in the house, but everyone else is paired off and everyone else is very much, you know, mm-hmm. dressed in heteronormative um, gender roles, super femme women, super masculine men. And then you have this one character and it's 
the the code of it all is sort of used as like a marker of like this person's abnormal and then the abnormality is you know equated into kind of being the villain which i find really interesting um but before we leave the 80s i would really like to ask you guys how you feel about sleepaway camp because i think that that is a really um important film in the slasher genre um and everyone has so much to say about sleepaway camp um so go right ahead and tell me everything on you know how you feel about this film because i think it's an important one oh sleepaway camp is a beautiful mess i uh, bless that mess i i love everything about it um i so so there's obviously a lot of queer coding in sleepaway camp some of which is a little more obvious in hindsight with how like the male men uh, all the, the male counselors and like all of the campers are dressed with you know their crop tops and their very tight jean shorts it's a uh, it was 80s style, but it definitely reads a lot more. Oh, yeah. uh, th- that that style is only carried on into queer men in the decades since the 80s. And so there is this certain, um, just mm-hmm. this inherent queerness of like, they're, they're everywhere, but you don't know who it is. Is it just fashion or is it something more? But I, uh, I, I love Sleepaway Camp. It is only works as a pro-trans film in hindsight. I, I've written extensively about how much I love this film because it's all about Basically, you force someone to live in a gender they don't want to, and it it screws with them. They get a lot of dysphoria. It comes out in a really bad way because maybe 12, 13-year-olds aren't the best at managing their emotions. I know I certainly wasn't. And then Angela goes and murders everyone who's mean to her. And God, isn't that cathartic. But I think, uh, honestly, Angela has some of the most straight costume design in in the film or certainly the most innocuous it's very plain it's nothing particularly notable about most of her clothing choices because she's at camp you know it's, it's meant for practicality or maybe like a camper's uniform i almost feel like that's really trying to force this character who you've you've turned into like a queer monster by making peter become angela but there's also this thing of like okay but you have to play by the rules you can't actually be queer though you have to you have to be a, a good oh oh you simply have to be a good little girl because Aunt Martha is a monster and I'm also obsessed with her. May she rest in peace. I, I love the first film. I like the second film, but it kind of retcons everything I love about the first film. So I have more complicated feelings about the sequels. So there's there's my short version of why I love Sleepaway Camp. Absolutely. No, those are all incredible takes. Alice, how do you feel about Sleepaway Camp? Um, I get why people like it, but to me, I really hate the film. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I get... Yeah, I mean, I just hate it in every aspect, especially the ending. I mean, maybe it was a time in like my, in my life when I watched it, but especially the ending. I feel like the sequel, to me, kind of more redeems the first film. I haven't seen the others, but it's like... She's got gender reassignment surgery. She's more happy with herself. And it's like, oh, the audience is kind of more rooting with her. And she seems like, oh, she's killing like bad campers. Like she's still bad, but it's like, oh, she seems like at a happier point in her life. But I really can't stand the first one. I'm sorry <laughs> to anyone who likes it. I, I don't blame anyone for not liking Sleepaway Camp 1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's what's so interesting about these films is that there's kind of an ongoing discussion about them that I think is really fascinating and important to continue, especially as we kind of move into the future of horror and how we want to shape 
the genre, how we as queer people want to take over the genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's. I think it's important to have these discussions and have different opinions about these films because I do think that a lot of it, it's, there's a lot to unpack when we're looking back on films that, you know, we didn't come of age with, you know, things that are happening like the 80s or, you know, the 70s or something. It's really interesting to kind of look back on them and see how people sort of have viewed them throughout time because I think it really shifts. Um, And even generation to generation can really shift. And I think that's really interesting hearing the different perspectives on these films. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I agree. The costuming is pretty subtle. I don't think that, you know, again, it's a really good example, I think, of the 80s sort of costuming in very subtle ways where, um, you know, particularly with Angela, she's just dressed like a camper. You know, we're seeing costumes like the other counselors, like you had mentioned. We have our aunt who's dressed to, you know, the absolute nine, <laughs> super campy, which, you know, camp camp to me equates as queer just, you know, on its own. In my in my brain, she's like a lesbian vampire. Like that would be like <laughs> the peak of it all to me. Um, Emma just wants the world to be lesbian vampires. <laughs> if you learned, I do. If you've learned do. anything from this podcast up to this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That's like, I, I won't get off my high horse about it. Because um, it's just like, you could be a vampire, you could be lesbian and fashionable. I don't know. Right. Absolutely. Rings true to me. Any fashionable character, I'm like, they're a vampire. Um, but that's a whole different uh, spec script that I apparently have to write. <laughs> um, but yeah, Jolene, what do you think about the costuming in Sleepaway Camp? Because I do think that it's uh, relatively subtle. I've only seen this film a handful of times. The first time I saw it, I was not expecting that ending. And I was like, I I don't know how I feel about this. Oh my. Like, I feel like I am not in a place to either like react or get upset to it. But I was like, what? But it is like you were saying, just standard summer camp where um, she's she is quite feminine in portrayal with like the ruche tops, you know, the sports shorts and she's got the barrettes in her hair and and everything. And and now I mean, Felicia Rose as an actress now as an older woman is very feminized in the way, you know, cause she, mm-hmm. that she presents herself to the world and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in contrast with like the other mean girls at the camp who are, you know, in their tube tops and their um, very, very feminine clothing, she's definitely a fem- feminine, but a go between between the boys at the camp. But then you see the sportswear of the day and you see these like short shorts and these male crop tops. And there was this gender fluidity to athletic wear in the 80s that we don't really have anymore. I mean, we kind of do, but it's very like um, bougie now. Mm-hmm. Like our, our sportswear is very bougie mm-hmm. and it's it is quite gendered with like leggings and crop tops. But then men have like this Under Armour, you know, uniform that they wear if they go running or anything. But um, yeah, I love like late 70s early 80s like athletic wear because it's so like i want the short shorts to come back for men i think it's a nice look same i want to see some pale chicken thighs coming back but yeah it's an interesting when you look at the 80s yeah right transitioning into the 90s now um and what I what I learned from that that docu series on Hulu about the culture wars i didn't realize 
now how much the the church and the state were kind of fighting each other for these gay rights at the time and so mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to dive into that with you guys because it was something that I didn't I kind of knew about but didn't realize how heavily it was happening yeah it tends to work in I mean I'm not going to speak globally because I, I'm not educated enough to be doing that but certainly in America it tends to go in cycles where you'll have like a very um like queer adventurous period or a queer rebellious period and then politically it fights back way harder you had that in you know the 80s where like queer culture started to thrive but then was demonized because of aids and because ronald reagan's a bastard then by the 90s stuff started to branch out and become more accepted you had a lot more blatantly queer media particularly in the way of like 90s was really the era of the drag queen movie for some reason um i don't know why that specifically was was the time i'm sure there's much more complicated answer than one i'm prepared to give but once that was the Clinton administration and Clinton was certainly not perfect, but he was doing a lot of democratic, classic Democrat playing both sides kind of kind of stuff. But he was making certainly more strides than we had during you know Bush one or Reagan before that. And then once Clinton was out, George Bush pushed really hard on appeasing evangelicals. So you had him lobbying against gay people like in a very, very emphatic way, certainly during his second elect um, during the second election that he was a part of. And then you had Obama who kind of shifted it back and now we have Trump and it's just this ebb and flow where we're slowly getting more and more, but then they fight back even harder. And I think that's where our current battle where um, the, the, the queer community is in some respects cannibalizing trans people, where you have that being like the new hot button topic because you can't attack gay marriage anymore. You can't attack your garden variety like everyday queer person. So you have to attack the most vulnerable people because they're an easy target and it's just always about going for whoever's the easiest thing to punch down at at the time politically. And uh, yeah, the 90s was an optimistic but complicated time right. in in American queerness for sure. Yeah. And you had added some in your email to me, Harmony, you added some like 90s films to the list if you want to speak on those. Specifically, The Craft was one of the ones Ooh, that I saw that you added. Love to The, the Craft. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> First of all, I don't like the craft. I actually really, really don't like the craft. But aesthetically, the craft is extremely important. And in terms of... Oh, yeah. Big, not a fan of the craft. It it reeks a little too much of of white feminism and the rich getting richer. And I Mm. love Nancy as a villain, but people Mm. don't seem to pay attention to her being a villain. But I, I like Rochelle. I think she's the best character in the movie. But this is a whole big tangent that I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to fumble my way through, but aesthetically and queerly. So I know that in particular, a lot of gay men, as well as a lot of queer women, identify with the craft because there's this inherent feminineness to the craft because, you know, it's an all-female cast. It's about, you know, the villain is is women. The the, the main characters are women. Like, it's, it's very, very feminine. And so you have this counterculture that exists that gay culture has always thrived in, certainly up to this point in history. And it's this meeting of found family and anti-Christianity um, and Catholicism that exists in the spirituality of the craft, because there's definitely been um, the, the, the Catholic church and religions that sort of surround it have never been kind to gay people. In fact, I think that they're the root of everything that is that works against gay people, certainly in this country. But uh, people who are looking for spirituality, they've turned to like witchcraft and astrology and all of these other things that I'm equally not a fan of, but for different, not nearly as problematic reasons as like Christianity. 
And so there's a lot of points that certainly modern queer culture uh, from people who like either were coming of age or who were seeing this at a young age before, you know, they, they, they came of age or now seeing it retrospectively can, I can point back to for the craft, both visually and like, I don't know, thematically, moralistically. It's a very important film. I just don't like it. It's okay. I don't really like it either. Um, because at that time I was a little too young to like, I was about six or seven when the craft came out. So like, I wasn't going to watch mm-hmm. that one. I was watching Sabrina the Teenage Witch, so I definitely identified more with, like, the fluffier witches of the day. Um, but I haven't seen the remake, so I don't know what that has done for the newest generation. Um, but stylistically, it is, like you were saying, just a very beautiful film. It's it's a mess. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> I, I That's kind of what I gathered. Yeah, I the craft legacy is very... I like I like 80% of the craft legacy, and then it really poops oh. the bed pretty hard, particularly in the ending, and particularly with how it deals with its one bisexual male character who is... Boy, they bury that gay so quickly after he comes out. Um, spoilers. But... I think The Craft Legacy is an interesting film also because you have queer culture that is existing now, particularly for like Gen Z. Um, maybe Alice can speak to this better than I can. I exist on TikTok <laughs> and through my niece and nephew. But there is this um, almost like picking of various subcultures that exist, I feel like visually, where you have, okay, well, let's take 80s new wave and also goth culture from the 80s and 90s and also punk and also grunge. And we're going to combine these into... This almost um, thrifted, beautifully ramshackled together outfits that I am not nearly uh, eloquent enough to put together on myself, but I appreciate. And I think that The Craft Legacy does a marvelous job of highlighting these aesthetics, similarly to how um, you have Freaky also do a very similar thing. Um, A little bit less alternative, a little more, I guess, sort of mainstream American culture in terms of its styling. And then uh, one Mm. of my favorite movies of the last couple of years, Bit does it as well where it's Mm -hmm. dangerous but also feminine and i think that that inherently speaks to what i see in a lot of modern queer aesthetic yeah i would love to hear alice's like gen z perspective i don't really like the first craft but i mean i find the craft legacy that's one of my favorite horror films i mean just favorite horror like film in general really um i mean that ending yeah i can yeah that's has its issues um but yeah i don't know i feel like the way they handle their queer characters especially like with that one line um that zoe's character says like um when they're talking about pregnancy and she says trans girls have their own magic as well and i feel like it may seem like a throwaway line to some people but um i feel like it's a way just like to have her identity acknowledged by the others and also respected but they don't make a big deal about it and it's just she's one of the coven so and I mean, yeah, the style is also, I mean, I aim to dress as cool as that. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I, I feel like for me, the reason why I think about the craft and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love the craft. For me, it's a nostalgia thing because it's one of the films that I sort of discovered horror through. Like, even though I didn't necessarily come of age when it came out, it was something that I revisited because I probably saw like, a picture of Nancy and I was like, she looks so cool. I have to watch this film. And it's one of those films where I'm like, objectively. Yeah. Like objectively, it's not a good film, but (laughs) I want to be them. So I love it so much. And also I think there is something to be said about it being sort of like, um, 
a film where a lot of people find their queer identity or that it sort of um, brings together a lot of people in the queer community. I know that as a high schooler, that was something where I felt like I bonded over that a lot with like friends that were also sort of coming to their sexuality and discovering their gender identity. And it was just a film that I definitely associate with sort of finding yourself. It's very much a coming of age film. Although what, like upon rewatches, you're kind of like, Oh, that's definitely not as cool as I was either told or, you know, thought it was. Um, Cause I thought it was like the absolute shit. Like I thought it was like the coolest film in high school. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I definitely think there's something to be said about mm-hmm. identity in that film. Um, there's also something to be said about the association um, between uh, and maybe this is like an entirely different conversation, but just just to touch on it, the queer community and astrology and witchcraft, it's something where queer people, I think, for a very long time and like very much in, you know, recent years, um, like the last 10 years, uh, queer people are very drawn to astrology and find themselves through witchcraft. And um, it's sort of kind of this community thing. And it's something that I have like very mixed feelings about um, because I don't necessarily believe in astrology, but like, I feel like it's a very, mm-hmm. uh, at least here in Portland, it's like a very notorious thing that like a lot of queer people will very, very like heavily judge other queer people based on their astrological signs. Um, and it can be, yeah, it's a, it's like a, it's a Brooklyn thing too. It's oh, must, yeah. yeah, it must just be a thing. And it's something that like, I've been in living situations where I've like lived with like other queer people. And I was like, great. I found my people and they were like, oh, you're a Scorpio. Actually, I don't know if I can live with you. And you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's cool. Um, and also just like the white capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, witchcraft in recent years. It's very much uh, a loaded topic, but there is a- basically what I'm trying to say is there's definitely a connection between queer people and feeling really drawn to, um, you know, witchcraft films, things that are very uh, spiritual in that sense. Um, you know, like we're seeing it now with like modern witch films, like The Love Witch, which I actually really like The Love Witch and I think it's a pretty cool film. But uh, yeah, you can really see the mm-hmm. beginnings of that really come through in the 90s. Yeah, I think a lot of that sort of stems from uh, witchcraft is always been, you know, for persecuted people. Like, you know, we're, it burned the witch. A lot of them were considered, you know, that there's any reason they could have been considered a witch during like Salem witch trials. But, you know, one of them is that you could just have a rumor of them being queer and then suddenly you have to burn the witch. But I think there's a lot of appeal to it because despite being an outcast, despite being persecuted for whatever reason, which that gets into a whole lot of complications of white people feeling persecuted for things they mm-hmm. aren't necessarily persecuted that heavily for. Um, but I think there's a sense of power in witchcraft that you have that I think that's a lot of the draw. Like you you get a sense like, oh, you could put a hex on someone and whether the hex does something or not is really just your opinion on what you think, well, what you believe in spirituality or magic, but it makes you feel like you're doing something even if mm-hmm. the reality or is or yeah. isn't, you know? And I think that there's some appeal to having to having power. And that's one of the, the big draws of something like mm-hmm. the craft for good and bad reasons. Yeah, we'll have to do a whole episode on witchcraft because it's a very interesting 
topic um, and to see the evolution of the witch because I definitely come at now I'm a cis, you know cisgendered white woman but I come at witchcraft at the, from the perspective of um, the women in Salem the women in the Northeast in the 1600s they were healers they were doctors and these men saw that oh these women mm-hmm. were smarter than them and took their work and took all of this knowledge that they had to heal people and then used it for their own and then persecuted them and so like i don't necessarily believe in the spell casting mm-hmm. the hexing portion of it but the fact that like this knowledge was taken by the patriarchy away from a, a section of people that were either older were queer were women and just had knowledge that these men didn't have and right, that's the patriarchy. They got jealous and they felt threatened by it. So they wanted to destroy it and they wanted to like eradicate it, which is like. Yeah. Oh, we absolutely should do a whole episode on witchcraft. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I kind of want to jump back to the beginning of the decade again and kind of dissect, um, you know, films like Silence of the Lands and stuff like that, because we're seeing that trope again of mm-hmm. queer as a predator and i and this and and this is one of the reasons why people are, have been protesting the clarice television show which i don't think should be a show either as much as i love the silence of the lamb musical i i absolutely see the flaws and the problems in this <laughs> showing and yeah harmony's like ready for it let's go girl <laughs> Uh, First of all, I have a lot of emotional baggage that I've been working through over the last like six months with Silence of the Lambs, Mm -hmm. where I've written probably three or four times on it for in various different lenses. And it really has helped me plow through a lot of the trauma and problems I have with Silence because God, no, no character certainly in my life has been more damaging for the trans community than than Buffalo Bill. Uh, especially because I'm from Ohio and guess where Buffalo Bill's Mm. from and guess what Ohioans certainly remember about silence. So I, uh, I, I definitely have a lot of feelings about silence of the lambs. I think it's copaganda. I think Clarice is also just another police procedural though. From what I understand towards the, the later half of it, apparently it remedies all, or at least tries to do damage control on a lot of the transphobia of silence. But I'm not going to commit time and energy to that. I have other things to do. So uh, I think the most damaging thing about it is Mm -hmm. that you have the uh, would you fuck me scene uh, of of it where, you know, James Gum is wearing a a scalped head and is dressing around with like a tucked penis and is putting on garish lipstick. And I've made many arguments that the character is trans despite every fiber of my being wanting to just write off the character because it's so much easier to just say, like, listen to Hannibal Lecter, you know, a cis guy written by a cis guy who is an outdated doctor using outdated principles to say who is and is not trans. That's that's not ugly at all. I would love to just say, oh, Bill's not trans and, and move on with my life. But, man, there definitely is this, um, th- this, this villainization of that particular dancing scene that reads so much more homophobic to me because... It is camp. It's it's garish. It's almost old Hollywood in its glamour, but it's like a, a dirty version because this is a like underground, which is what makes it look like drag more of its time. Not the ballroom scenes, but certainly more like alternate drag. But that is a, certainly gives a, a presentation that people think of trans people that is so damning. But like overall, okay, removed the scalp wig, like put actual hair on, and like 
that that's a good look. You can you can you can tell that that's a good look mm-hmm. in a different film. This is an empowering moment in a different film, but in this one, it's particularly horrifying because there's definitely this sense of euphoria that you have from this character who is like, mm-hmm. I'm confident and I love myself and I think I'm beautiful, but it's painted as perverse. It's not a matter of I think I'm great. It's would you fuck me? I'd fuck me, and it makes it sexual and that makes it dangerous because mm-hmm. there is this. Uh, almost fetishization of of transgenitals where it's like, oh, what's in your pants? Tell me. I I need to know. You need to disclose this to me. It's almost this weird entitlement that comes off so much more perverse than anything actually in this film if you have cis people hounding trans people about their physical anatomy. But God, silence is is certainly a mess, isn't it? And I have, God, it's a really well-made film that I wish didn't win five Academy Awards and was in the Library of Congress because it's just pretty looking schlock but god damn it a difficult one to unpack because you're like especially because it's so it's so well known it's always around you there's so many people constantly talking about how good of a film it is but what people don't want to address is how dangerous it can be to portray trans characters in that way and i would completely agree with you i also read the character as trans i don't feel like it's my place to you know, like write or really speak on it, but I do, that is how I read the character. Um, And even if I didn't read the character that way, if trans people feel that that is the way the character is being portrayed and that it's dangerous to the community and to trans people, especially trans people that live in rural areas, then I feel like it's damaging, you know? Like it's kind of not necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, a question because it's, really really clear that it's being portrayed not even in like a fun campy like villainous way but like lighthearted and and you know like an empowering villain like Mary Lou or something um it's something where this is a dangerous person you should be afraid of them and Mm -hmm. that's all like there's nothing left to it it's not no one's finding themselves through this character like there's, there's really not many redeeming qualities about the character. And I think it's really interesting that you bring up that scene because you're right on like a surface level, if you took it out of the film and took it out of the context, it very well could be an empowering scene. And wearing what, you know, this character is wearing, that's something that popped into any other film would be this empowering moment of... Uh, of visibility, visibility that we just weren't getting at all in the 90s and still don't get a lot of to this day for trans people. And it is really disheartening that something like this could be so widely respected as a great film while having such a poor representation of trans people and that people seem to be okay with it or overlook it. And I think it's something that you kind of can't ignore um, when it comes to viewing this film. Like, I don't know how to have a conversation with someone about it if that's not part of the conversation, you know? I've definitely talked to plenty of trans people who actually do find Mm. this to be empowering in probably the same way that I do Sleepaway Camp. But it's so much more... um... It's, it's so much more complicated. I'm, I'm certainly only speaking from my perspective, and I think that's why it's super duper important to have more than one trans person talk to people about a topic. Like, this is great. <laughs> but 
oh man, it's um, there, there's certainly not there's no fun in this film with its queerness. It is it is damning. It is portrayed as very real and very visceral. And there's so much more. Um, th- this is almost borders on portraying it as as nonfiction. This this feels like the reality. You listen to Hannibal Lecter talk about this situation with Buffalo Bill, and it's you, you're supposed to take everything he says as fact because he's a doctor. He's a genius, but also he's mm-hmm. a habitual liar. So who what what can you trust about what he says? But people don't pay attention to that. They just take everything he says as fact. And that makes this movie have a lot more credence to it being like a real portrayal right. of something that could really yeah, happen. Absolutely. Alice, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too, especially as someone who is a part of Gen Z looking back on this film from the 90s that um, you know people have visceral opinions about and something that is so widely respected and like, you know, globally renowned for a film to have such a visceral portrayal of a character like Buffalo. I mean, like, so I 100% agree with what everyone said so far, but I feel like the biggest issue, aside from the way that the, I mean, how awful, like, the character and everything in that film is, um, is that these, like, typical film bros, and even in my generation, like, the stu- the film students are, like, always, like, defending the film and saying how, how much of a masterpiece it is. And there's so many people who do that, and I feel like, I mean, you I don't really know how people can like it. I mean, I do, but like, I feel like people need to acknowledge that without just overlooking the whole character and everything about it. And people can't just say, especially cis, like straight people can't just say the character's not trans. Oh, it's not an issue. You're just like trying to make it a problem and like kind of do all that kind of stuff. And especially, I don't know if it contributes or is a reason why there's like transphobia in the horror community, but I feel like if people keep bringing that film up and keep, discussing it as this masterpiece and there's so many articles saying oh how it's a great film the character's not trans trans people just trying to get the spotlight and you know the pc police gone like too woke or whatever i feel like that's like a really big issue i think that i don't know maybe needs to be talked about yeah that's a really good point now how do you guys feel about because buffalo bill isn't in like the subsequent sequels like red dragon the hannibal television spinoff like the story as a whole is like do do you still invest your time watching it or because of how it was set up in Silence of the Lambs do you just kind of like not focus on those other sequels and spin-offs and stuff I actually haven't seen Hannibal and I've been told by a lot of people including at least one person who is kind of important in getting Hannibal made that they would love to hear my opinions on it but I I'm not really much of a TV mm-hmm. person I certainly I haven't seen the third installment, but I have seen the second. Um, which one is it? Is it Hannibal? That's the second one. And then there's what Hannibal Rising. Yeah. Okay, so I've seen the second one, and I, I, I don't know. I think that the character of Hannibal Lecter is very fascinating. I definitely read everything about him, despite what people say about oh him trying to woo Clarice. I think everything about him as a character reads as super queer to me. Mm. And same thing with Clarice, honestly, but. I don't know. They're. I don't think they're just as good of films, even if the Hannibal Lecter character is super duper interesting. Yeah. I, I can't really speak on, on the TV show, though. But apparently it's so much more gay. It is. Yeah, it is. Like, they're, um, him and, and Will are... There's there's a lot of moments where um, there's a lot of sexual tension between the two of them because he is this uh, 
psychologist. Um, mm-hmm. He's like a criminal analyst, I guess. But he also can empathize with killers, and that's why they bring him onto crime scenes. So when he speaks to Hannibal, he like has this empathy for him, and you wonder if he is almost falling for him, or if he is trying to build that wall up, or if if he's being manipulated by him. It's a really interesting character dynamic for that reason. I, I think it's a beautiful show. Um, the food in the show. I, I'm a vegan, but I even think that the food on the plate is very beautifully <laughs> shot and presented, even though it's humans. <laughs> but uh, it's good if you like food photography. <laughs> so as we sort of exit the '90s now and get into the millennium we're starting to, you know, and bringing us up to present day, we're seeing more realistic um, representation, queer representations and horror. And obviously you guys can speak more to that. Um, but like, you know, let's, let's start talking about, cause now I, cause now we just need to talk about Jennifer's body. All we need to do is climb our way up to Jennifer's oh, body. And then obviously that's, that's the oh goal. Um, but yeah, what's, what we're seeing in the early two thousands and just sort of, increasing up until now you know pre jennifer's body and post jennifer's body as i like to think of our (laughs) timeline um just in life my day-to-day life it we're really starting to (laughs) see films that are very openly queer um we're seeing openly queer characters um films that are made through a queer lens and you know in the early 2000s we had films like Lesbian Psycho, which I think is a better name for the film, um, but it's also known as Make-A-Wish. We have Hellbent, you know, things that are very much like clearly queer. Um, But what I like about them is that in the costuming, you can see, um, for example, in uh, Lesbian Psycho Make-A-Wish, you can see that the characters and like, yes, it's about, you know, because I talk a lot about like, oh, it's important to have queer characters just be queer and that's like not the plot line. That's not the case with Lesbian Psycho. The point is that they're all lesbians. Um, And I love that too. Uh, But you could see that they're costumed in a way where it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily sexualized. They look like actual lesbians and they also aren't all, you know, dressed in that masculine sort of butch trope of like, filmmakers at that time only thinking that lesbians were butch which is simply not the case and so in that film I felt like it was a pretty realistic uh interpretation of what uh lesbians looked like in the early 2000s which was just you know like normal people they didn't swing super masculine or super feminine you know you got kind of a good mix um and then we have hellbent which is really iconic for queer men and we also got more kind of like leather bar kink representation in that film and so it was really great to see how queer people were starting to be represented in a light where it felt more realistic um and we got a little bit more of a variety and uh something i really want to kind of touch on throughout this period of 2000s up until now is how the queer gaze differs from like the male gaze or a straight gaze you know how are how can you tell that a queer character um is being represented in a way that's authentic and uh intentional versus something that you know we saw in previous decades 
and we saw, and we still see to this day, but more so in previous decades where queer characters were more, they were coded or they, you know, were villainized or maybe like weren't really supposed to be there or something like that, where now we're seeing characters that are just queer and they're in the film and uh, it's much more normalized the more and more time passes. Um, And I'm curious on how queer people and how we viewed them in film uh, through their costume and just how they're presented to us uh, kind of shifted as we, you know, got closer and closer to present day. Yeah, I always think of it in contrast to like all of the like bro comedies of the early 2000s because you have like American Pie and all of these films that are like, like you were saying, like we're going to joke about it, but then we're going to call like, oh, no homo or, you know, like these really, really bad phrases that are very hurtful towards people that like are where we're open and accepting to sexuality, but the individual is still like uncomfortable with it or the male individual is still quite uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like you also saw a lot of that uh, come through in the costuming, especially for queer men. I feel like across all media, it was like a very big moment for filmmakers to really um, exploit sort of the, the gay best friend like that was like a big deal. We saw that in things like Sex and the City too, you know, like where, yeah, there's a queer friend, but like they're sort of this accessory. They're like the straight white woman's favorite accessory. And you saw that in like almost every film and they were always very feminine. And they were always wearing, you know, like tight clothing or um, shirt that's unbuttoned or, you know, like a cute little hat or something like that where, yes, they were obviously queer and that obviously came through in the costuming, but again, it was like a very specific kind of costuming where it was like, this is the specific way we think of gay men, which is like feminine. And it we were still kind of playing into uh, gay women were looking only butch at the time, especially at least in the early 2000s. I think that was still happening. Um, but with gay men, I feel like that really lasted quite some time. Uh, where even to this day, I feel like I'm only seeing queer men in film as super feminine, if they're going to be. But um, yeah, films in the early 2000s very much were like, this is a, this person's an accessory and we could see that they're queer, but they're not necessarily going to be a part of the story and they're not going to have, they're going to have a pretty one-dimensional plot line and and character arc and they are there to serve a certain purpose um and it's still a bit like this is still the butt of the joke like we're not there's more visibility and we're seeing more and more actually like queer made films but in the mainstream of things there's still this notion of like we can't really have our own stories you know be told you know we had things like but i'm a cheerleader which was fantastic uh, but that's not a horror film, so I won't go on my but I'm a cheerleader uh, rampage. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about Jennifer's Body is that it came out in a post-Sex in the City world, and that meant women were allowed to be like open about their sexuality, but then they were punished for it. And you saw that a lot with how we were treating female celebrities a lot at the time. Like We look back on it now with like the Free Britney movement, and that's very much how we're reassessing that era of American culture. And we punished Megan Fox just because she's one of the most beautiful people that we've ever produced as a species. 
And I think that when you look at like the male gaze as opposed to like the gay gaze of Jennifer Body's marketing is that they straight up didn't know what to do with that movie. It is one of the most blatant misrepresentations of what a movie is in its trailer that I can think of outside of something like Kangaroo Jack or or Snow Dogs, where the entire trailer was based around like a maybe two minute dream sequence for both those films. And Jennifer's body was like, oh, hey, we're going to we're going to market this movie towards like the horny teenage boys and they're going to love it. When the reality is that you now have this film that you're marketing towards the wrong audience and it's going to turn off the people who should be viewing it, which are women and the queer community. And it, it's this unpleasant mixture. But when you think of someone like a Jennifer Check, who isn't a cheerleader, she's actually in the color guard, but like the image that everyone thinks of her is as a cheerleader. The cheerleader is such Americana in like a really, really intense way that I don't think people in this country quite realize isn't normal in other in other parts of the world. Like I don't think cheerleaders exist in other countries, um, certainly not in most of them. And you have things like, but I'm a cheerleader or the final girls or even like, I don't know, Night of the Comets, which isn't like, you know, super gay, but it's this almost infiltration of American culture that is so interesting to look at because it is like, you know, the the stereotypical popular girl in school, the stereotypical high femme, but you have queerness seep in because it's not about, oh, how they're dressed, how they're presenting. It's about how they're acting, which is, you know, queerness. <laughs> and I, I attest that But I'm a Cheerleader is absolutely a horrifying movie because conversion therapy is a, a nightmarish reality that exists. And that's really what sets Jennifer's body, even Seed of Chucky, just apart at this time is that it's, you know, people writing stories that are truthful and they're coming from the correct lens. I mean, I know Jennifer's body was written by a straight woman, but um, there's still like what Harmony was saying to you earlier, where like we were villainizing sexual women that were taking agency over their bodies in ways that um, frightened the other people. So therefore we villainized them. We called them sluts. We teared them down, which was not okay. And and that's what, as a, as a grown woman now, why I love Jennifer's body, because I didn't like it when I was a teenager. I, I'm so mad at how it was marketed to me. I was so mad at what they did with that movie beca because that was the era of like, you know, you had to be either one or the other, the Madonna or the whore. And that's not the case. That's not how women exist. Women don't exist on that, you know, just one or the other. And that's, uh, yeah, love Jennifer's body. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear Alice's perspective too on kind of growing up in a time where like you were probably, because I was, I was quite young when that came out as well. Um, I was, how old was I? I was like, in maybe end of middle school or going into high school, I was like a young, young teen when Jennifer's body came out, I think. Um, and so in kind of like the late 2000s was sort of like when you were a kid and you were seeing this media around you, how do you, like, how did you see uh, queer characters sort of develop through uh, your time growing up and sort of how you kind of view it retrospectively now? Um, because I think at, in 2009, it very much was like in the media that, you know, Megan Fox is just this like 
hot girl that's supposed to be in Transformers and, you know, Jennifer's body is like her hot girl movie. And even in like the poster, she's wearing um, a schoolgirl outfit that she literally doesn't wear in the film, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm curious what, you know, how it was for you growing up in this time where that was sort of in the culture and how you view it. Um, I mean, I don't really remember really seeing any kind of queer representation like growing up. I'd say the only show which I started like watching when I was like four when it came out was Glee, which is not a horror show, but I think that was the first time I saw a character who was openly gay. And yeah, I mean, he was bullied, but he was still happy and he was authentically being himself. And I think looking back on it now, I don't want to get too much into it, but it, it has its problems, of course. But I feel like that was quite an important show for me to watch at that time. Um, with a film like Jennifer's Body, I didn't really see it till I was like 12. Um, but I feel like, I mean, I've seen the marketing, I think, okay, that's atrocious. I don't really remember when it came out. But um, with my generation, it's kind of like a common film to really love, especially in the horror genre. Like I find like everyone kind of like similar to my age really loves that film and connects to that. I mean, even through TikTok, it's really had its resurgence with Gen Z, like all the like the quotes and yeah, kind of everything. Yeah, Jennifer's Body is a really great film, and I like that it's kind of in the same vein as, like, Mary Lou, this, like, demonized femme character is having her resurgence. Jennifer's Body is another demonized femme character having her resurgence, um, and I'm very happy for her. <laughs> uh, I am, too, because those some of those looks, like, I'm waiting for some of those looks come back because I definitely did the tank top over the long sleeve shirt with the jean skirt in 2009 and like I knew I didn't have the cropped jacket very with the cool fur collar but I knew some girls who had the crop jacket with the, the puffy coat and um my first boyfriend in, in in high school looked like Chip he had the hair and he had the the emo like aesthetic so you were basically Jennifer <laughs> I know I was basically needy <laughs> aren't we all basically needy um, yeah. What's great about Jennifer is that <laughs> she's not just like, she's not just feminine. She's like so high femme. She's like, yes, extreme, like form fitting clothing. Everything's pink uh, or pastel or white or, you know, we do see a lot of those like virginal kind of pastel colors come through, which is kind of a fun juxtaposition because she's so sexually liberated and the colors that we associate uh, in costuming with um, like a virginal character, kind of like pure final girls in the 80s, they would wear a lot of those kind of colors. But Jennifer is um, the exact opposite of that, but we still see her kind of wear a lot of those colors. But we're also seeing her wearing those like super bright pinks, like the heart jacket with the heart earrings, really is like that's the one that yeah. sticks out the most to me. Um, absolute icon. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and also what is interesting when it comes to that marketing is like, we see how it was marketed with that, like really skimpy schoolgirl costume, which by the way, is a whole nother thing I could go on a rant about is why we even uh, think yeah. schoolgirl outfits is sexy. Like, right. As somebody who went to private school, that's very predatory behavior to like sexualize me in my school wear. <laughs> yeah. It's like very weird that that's still like a normal thing to this day. Um, yeah. but, uh, in the actual film, she's actually wearing clothes that are not super, super revealing. I mean, she's wearing form-fitted clothes, but even in like her cheerleading costume, 
I believe she's wearing like tights with her, um, with her skirt mm-hmm. and her top. And so within the film, you can see that she's not necessarily sexualized. And that's where you see the female gaze come through because then you see the male gaze come through in the marketing where Megan Fox, you know, the hot actress is hypersexualized. Right. Um, so I always found that really interesting. But I am very happy to see, especially in 2009, a bisexual queer character who's super high femme. Uh, because, you know, like we've been saying, we weren't getting a lot of that. We were getting like feminine gay men and masculine lesbian women. But we were finally getting a super high femme modern queer woman and... That's honestly what I love the most about it is just how high femme she is. I felt I felt very seen because I feel like I, I I don't think when I was growing up, a lot of me not thinking that I might be bisexual, a lot of it was like, well, I'm super femme, so you know, I could there's no way I could be. Uh when that's just not the case. And um it's why like presentation Uh, And how we, you know, our real life costumes, you know, how we present ourselves to the world is inherently linked with our identity. And so, and since we have so closely interlinked sexuality and gender identity and like the feminine and masculine, you know, the feminine and masculine now play a part in how we view our identity. And so much of that is because of what we wear and how, you know, the, how we think of, you know, what we associate with certain uh, items of clothing. Um, it's it's really fascinating. And so that's what I love about Jennifer's body uh, is just how extremely pink she is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I didn't even think about how I also remembered her as a cheerleader, but that's so fascinating that she is actually in color guard. And I like that that yeah. feels like a very intentional choice uh, because there is such this, there's a heightened trope with like the sexualized cheerleader, which again, Worse, we seem to be continuing to sexualize teenagers, you know, oh, schoolgirls, cheerleaders, so sexy. Maybe not. Maybe that's creepy. We should we should really reflect on that. Um, but yeah, I really I think that's a really interesting um, an interesting uh, choice from the filmmakers of Jennifer's body, because I, it does feel very intentional in that they were trying to portray Jennifer very intentionally in a different light. And it's a very. I think it's a very meticulous film. There's things like that that you pick up on uh, that really make it even more visceral. Uh, but before we leave the 2000s, I do want to touch on Seed of Chucky because Seed of Chucky is noted as having one of the only non-binary characters, not even just in horror, but one of the very few non-binary characters in cinema to this day uh, because there simply is not... Uh, there's basically no non-binary representation in horror history, in film history, uh, and it's something that is still very, very new that I think um, a lot of big franchises or, uh, you know, Hollywood producers, that's not something they're quite grasping because they don't see that as a priority as far as making money. Um we're seeing more like indie non-binary representation, but Seed of Chucky was a film from a massive franchise in the mid two thousands that had a non-binary character. So I'd love to unpack um, our, our favorite gender queer doll 
uh, <laughs> in Seed of Chucky. So what are your thoughts on Seed of Chucky? All the respect in the world for Don Mancini being a beautiful madman who just decided, hey, um, I'm going to parlay all of my good fortunes and favors that I've accured from Bride of Chucky and make the gayest movie of the decade. And everyone's gonna hate it, but they just weren't ready for how incredible this film is. Because that movie is dealing with, like, toxic masculinity, gender roles, non-binary people, which almost never comes up in conversation. And it's doing it in this really intelligent way that is also aggressively anti-femme. Because, you know, Chucky's not a good guy. He's never been a good guy. But he is embodying that mentality and striking back against it in a really ugly way, but it's not inauthentic. Like, that is, it, it's so smart in how it's it's handling both of these things through the two parental roles of Chucky and Tiffany. And, oh, oh my god, Tiffany is just a style icon. Jennifer Tilly is a goddess, and she's especially good for pulling double duty in Seat of Chucky, and I love her. But the idea of Glenn Glenda is so interesting to me to think about because Glenn or Glenda was obviously like an old Ed Wood film that got uh, a lot of life later on as a, a sort of reefer madness type film where it was so bad it was good. And there are elements of seeing this character switch between such drastic gendered clothing, particularly for its era. But at the same time, this was also supposed to be a Christine Jorgensen film, who was a, the most well-known trans woman in the world. And you have Ed Wood, who was a proud, cross-dressing straight man who then co-opted this film to be all about himself, which is ugly. But Don Mancini, bless his heart, went, no, we're bringing this back to the community. And I think that is just absolutely incredible. Um, Glenn Glenda as, like, a big deal. I'm, I'm assuming, I think... I think they mostly focused on our two characters that were really established in the previous movies, but the queerness was not at the forefront of this. And honestly, it was not well received at the time by critics or the community. And it's really fascinating how much it has been re-embraced and reappraised as time's gone on because... Things are only classic in hindsight. Things aren't always, you know, right at the time. You're not, you, you try to make things as, as cutting edge as possible. But the way this movie has held up so well is remarkable. I, I, I don't, it, it's, it's absolutely genius. I mean, first of all, I really love the film. Um, I do just wonder, like, when the film was released, like, what was that kind of marketing strategy? And like, how did reviewers kind of like, accept the character like were they referring to the character as non-binary at the time or were they like referencing male or female because i mean i'm not i don't remember but it's just interesting to see if like the filmmakers were backing the stance at the time and like were fully out there saying not only is this a queer film but the character is also gender queer like if that makes sense like if they had the best intentions i'm not saying they don't i just be curious to see if any of you guys know now i've never seen this film uh i i will be honest now I want to see this film because I didn't know that there was a genderqueer character in this film because when I, this came out in like 2005, I was like, I don't want to see a movie about dolls having a baby. And like, I totally just did not see it. <laughs> so now I need to go back and watch this movie with all of the still images that I've seen of this movie. 
It's it is really good. I don't know. I always thought that um Glenn Glenda looked like Miranda from Sex and the City season one. Um <laughs> I don't know if that's more proof that Miranda is a queer coded character, but that's a whole I could unpack Sex and the City all day. That's a there's a lot to unpack there, but yes. Who is a queer woman? So maybe I just think that Glenn Glenda looks like um Cynthia Nixon. But I don't know if we need that read from Emma today. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the costume of this character is basically what we see as androgyny today, which is short haircut, like t-shirt, like short haircut and t-shirt, you know, pants, very neutral. Um, and it does bring up the conversation of like, okay, so we clearly aren't representing non-binary people enough. Because we're associating androgyny with non-binary, but we're also gendering androgyny when it comes to feminine and masculine. And so, again, it's like I I think the androgyny conversation is kind of an ongoing one when it comes to clothing because I still don't really have the answers. Uh, because on one hand, we're like, okay, we could just say we should kind of push for clothing to just be androgynous. But then on the other hand, there is something to having feminine and masculine clothing to help anyone of any identity sort of pick and choose and build uh, their look and their, you know, real life costume uh, to portray how they feel and their identity. And so it's, yeah, it's kind of a complicated topic, um, but I do think that this is a really good example of, non-binary representation showcasing what we think of as very like baseline androgynous Mm -hmm. yeah and that's interesting when we see the transition then into then the next decade where I, i you know like we're getting now I guess, more realistic representations, right? Like with Hunting a Blind Manor and The Quiet Room and and movie that are more movies made by queer filmmakers, more representation. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I want to talk about The Babadook because I know that like there was an issue with Netflix and that's why it has become a gay icon film. But is there actually queer subtext in The Babadook or is it just... <laughs> I... That's a... That's a really funny one to bring up. I think that um, something that I think about is how that wasn't necessarily originally like read as queer. Like it was that, you know, goof that then kind of turned it into a meme, which then turned the Babadook into a gay icon. Um, But something that I've actually read a few times is people kind of talk about how the Babadook could be read as this kind of like gender queer being because uh, he's dressed very much in like a kind of like gender neutral sort of black coat. And um, a lot of people sort of view that as like potentially queer, but I wonder if people would have that reading if it weren't for like that becoming like a hot topic. I have heard people read the Babadook as a queer film I do think it is one of those films where like, to me, I'm kind of like a lot of horror is queer in many, many ways, you know, because it's like reckoning with oneself. uh, And that could be, I think there's a lot of vast ways to read it. But um, yeah, I do think it's kind of funny that 
there are these kinds of readings as far as like the costume goes with the Babadook uh, where there is actually sort of maybe something to be said about like what the Babadook is wearing and like he seems so like androgynous yet stylish and a lot of people read that alone as queer which um, I think is funny but also absolutely correct. And Alice, I, I'm curious how you feel about like how your generation views the horror genre and sort of how you see it developing, like what you want to see more of in the future and uh, what you're already kind of seeing now from young filmmakers. Um, I mean, I guess like with my generation, like people I know, I mean... I mean, we see horror as pretty queer. Maybe that's just the people I surround myself with. Um, I mean, I guess I would love to see more, like, direct representation. You know, that would be, like, nice rather than to have, to, like, sure, horror is queer as just, like, the genre, but, like, just to see, like, different characters and more situations where they say it and that's just, like, how it is and more diversity and representation. I mean, I feel like at the moment, I feel like one of the biggest issues in horror is, like, say for a film like Bit, which mm-hmm. I really love, um, is that critics and like there's this whole range of people that will like undermine the film just because it's got like a queer like or trans character in the lead and then the film will like do so badly or like critically people will be like oh this is like not good just because of like having those queer characters and then like it's how do you market that as well so I feel like in the future I'd like to see like more the horror community embracing films with trans leads and kind of getting rid of those like white straight film bros who complain about anything that's not marketed directly towards mm-hmm. them even when like the craft legacy when that came out like it's like sitting at such a poor rating i mean regardless like of course film is subjective but i mean most of the reviews are like oh it has a trans character and it's directed by female all oh, they talk about like sexism that's trash you know like that kind of stuff yeah yeah so i mean i guess i'd also like to see a lot more authenticity as well like trans people telling trans stories as well rather than just like studios being like, we should make a, a film for gay people, but like have like all straight people and no like consultants or anything like that as well. Like I think that can also be helpful. Absolutely. Harmony, where do you see the genre going and, and where would you like it to go? God, the future of horror right now is so optimistic. I'm, I love that horror is as deep as you want it to be at the moment because obviously horror has always dealt with its topics in subtext. It's always been a response to whatever's going on in the world. And there is a lot of that in our current horror scene. But it's also just really nice to see very literal stuff. Uh, obviously, queer people have always had to exist as, as as a monster or as like this implied queerness, but it, it's very literal now. It's, it's very visible. And while visibility and representation aren't the be-all, end-all, that's, that's certainly not the end goal, the idea that we're seeing more people of color, more queer people, more trans people, like really starting to now, just now, just now, see non-binary people is so great, especially when you go behind the scenes and see all of the people that are working on these films. And with a lot of these, with a lot of the movies that have came out recently, um, particularly with representation in teen targeted films, you know, the people who need to see that representation probably more than anyone, you have really diverse and interesting casts of actors and characters, whether it be like Black Christmas 2019 or 
bit, obviously, which we've mentioned, or freaky. Like, there's so many good examples of stuff out there that is refreshing, and I'm a horrible cynic, but it gives me a lot of optimism, uh, especially when it's just really, really fun to just throw all of this in the face of every cranky old man or horror bro or fuddy-duddy who's like, why is horror so political now? And fuck you. You got to enjoy not having to pay attention to the politics, but now we're going to make it unignorable. And that that being at the forefront is so cool and so refreshing. And I just... Ah, it, just it just really warms my heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I would also love to just see um, like a wider range of representation because, you know, I, I, and I think I, I do see it happening, especially, you know, more throughout the 2010s. But like we talked about with the early 2000s, a lot of these queer characters were very much like one dimensional, um, especially in their costuming. And I want to see, you know, I want to see non-binary representation. I want to see non-binary representation too that is not even androgynous necessarily, like non-binary characters that are dressing feminine or masculine, you know, because there is a wide range of people out there, you know, trans and queer characters that aren't sort of being exploited by the costumes that they're wearing. Um, I want to see queer, queer men that are really masculine and, you know, more high femme lesbian women, uh, which, you know, I think that we have seen more and more of because I think that the horror genre does to some extent love, you know, feminine lesbians, uh, as we saw, you know, even in the seventies. Um, but I would like to see a more authentic, like you had mentioned, like representation of that, but also, you know, I think particularly gay men have kind of, uh, gotten the shit end of the stick when it comes to you know that kind of representation uh, because they really I think still to this day are portrayed very feminine they don't they really don't have to be um, but especially non-binary representation uh, and trans representation because there is really not a lot of it that feels authentic I think bit was one of the best examples of just kind of like good authentic representation uh, but we're still not getting a lot of it, especially in the mainstream. And so, yeah, I completely agree. I would love to see uh, more of that start coming to life and really see where things develop, how, you know, dirty word of the day, androgyny <laughs> develops um, over time. I'm very, you know, curious about how clothing will be continued to be gendered and how horror films will continue to be gendered and how, gender identity and the conversation around that will affect changes in, you know, both of those areas, what we wear in our day-to-day -day life and how um, we're all portrayed on film. Uh, and yeah, I think it's kind of a conversation that I want to continue having, you know, for the rest of my life, <laughs> but you know, not without more representation. I want that first. So where can um, our listeners find you, um, Alice? Where, where Do you have social media? What, what are your upcoming projects that you can talk about? Um, I just have Instagram. So Alice Mary McKay or One Matter Productions. Um, and then my film is available, I think, on Amazon Prime, my short film that I did. And then my features. So I guess just if you want to follow my socials, I guess you can see when it comes out. Thank you. And where can we find you, Harmony? 
Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. I also co-host a uh, teen girl focused podcast with my wife, BJ. It's called This Ends of Prom, where we look back at teen girl films or films that are targeted t- towards teen girls, which are a very heavily dismissed genre. And we look at it from her perspective, which is very nostalgic, but critical. And I look at it through my very non-nostalgic lens because, you know, I didn't experience a lot of teen girl media because I, I used to be a strapping young lad some 10 plus years ago. <laughs> and I, I really try to understand the films in the context that they were released in, as well as us really Thank just you. trying to unpack how they've held up over the years. And really the whole goal of the podcast is to just give these films the respect that we should give all media that's targeted towards women, especially teen girls, because they get shat on more than anyone. Yeah, well, this was an incredible discussion. I want to thank you guys so much because um, you taught me a lot. And now I am so excited to go back to these films and rewatch them with these different lenses on now and, and equipped with these tools now. So I'm very excited to dive back into these films. Yes, me too. Love the energy. Yes. And I, I also really do hope that we see more people of color, especially queer people of color, trans people of color, um, non-binary people of color, because that's something that we literally have barely seen. Um, and even in the recent years, um, but especially in, Horror history, it's it's um, very much, uh, maybe we see a lot of like um, the f- feminine gay black man, but I think that it's time we retire that trope and we expand our representation to, to greater heights. And I am also very excited to see where the genre takes us. I'm, I'm also pretty optimistic. I think we're having a good moment in horror right now and uh, the tides are hopefully turning for the better. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you guys both for joining us and thank you to our audience for listening in. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at to die for podcast. That's D Y E and on Twitter at die podcast. And next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for.